Okay, welcome everyone to Drisha Winter's MAN program and the second part of a two-part class on eating and community, cre creation and demarcation. And with this, I'll turn it to you, uh, Rabbi Bronstein. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Evie. I, I really appreciate it. And, um, and as, I, as, I, as I said at the beginning of, the beginning of, of Monday's session, um, just a thank you to the Drisha administration for the invitation for me to be, be able to come here and share, and share some Torah. I, uh, I benefited a lot from Drisha on the other side of the Zoom screen, on the other side of the screen in general. And I appreciate being on this side or having, having the opportunity to be on this side. And also it's a privilege to be able to learn Torah with, together with people that are taking time out of their you know, Wednesday afternoon to be, able to be able to learn Torah together, particularly about food. So on Monday, we started talking about the intersection of food and social life and social, social cohesion um, within Judaism. And we saw the Chazal, we saw that the Talmud makes a big deal of the social cohesion, the togetherness, the fraternity that's brought together, that, that's, that's created when people, when people eat together. The key line in the Gemara that we saw was Gadol Gima, great is food, that it brings people together. And we saw that we saw that according to one contemporary major halachic decisor, that this notion of food bringing people together is so important, it's considered actually an essential function of a Beit Knesset, an essential, fu an essential function of a shul, that it, ha it, it, it should have a place for people to come and eat together after the prayer services. Um, and then we, then we started, after that brief introduction, we started talking about um, we're gonna, that we're gonna focus on two different case studies. So a case study we focused on last, on two days ago, the last time, was the sectarians and the chavirim of Second Temple Judaism. And we saw that there were certain groups within Second Temple Judaism that wanted to become a spiritual elite. They wanted to be singularly minded, focused on their devotion and their service of God. And the way that manifested itself was through their basically pro prohibitions of eating together with anybody else. They created eating rituals for themselves that when they eat together, they have to eat a certain level of purity. They have to speak a certain amount of Torah. They have to go to the mikvah beforehand, whatever it was. And people on the outside were no longer welcome to, to eat together with them. And we saw that for the, for the sectarians in the, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, this was taken to the extreme, 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 such that like everybody else was considered basically not Jewish and therefore you're unable to eat with anybody else. And for the Chaverim, for the heroes of the Mishnah, this, this existed, but it was counterbalanced with a desire, with the, with the, with the, with the counter value of achtos, of unity in the Jewish people. And the, they basically, they had to navigate on the one hand, their desire to create a subsection within the Jewish people to focus on their, on, their, on, on their elite spiritual life. While on the other hand, they didn't want to totally, totally disconnect from the rest of the Jewish people. And we, and we discuss how they navigated this, uh, this, 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 how they navigated this, this conundrum that they, um, that they allowed certain, certain acts of eating to be done together. They trusted the Amiyarits, the average people, within the confines of the, within the, confines of the Beit HaMikdash. They made sure that they lived among the Amiyarits. They made sure that in Jerusalem, on a festival, they were able to eat together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what we saw basically was that there were these two values of, of having a very focused spiritual life and creating a sub-community was, was put in conflict with the desire of achtos, with the desire of unity amongst the Jewish people. We saw one way of navigating it. What we're gonna focus on, focus on today is a second case study and we're gonna fast forward basically 2000 years 
to, to contemporary Chabad Hasidus. Um, as people know, Chabad is a world, is, you know, is, is span, spans the globe, and I don't, I don't think Chabad, Chabad really needs an introduction. Chabad is one sect in the general Hasidic movement that began in the, 17, in the 1700s with Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov. Um, and Chabad, and Hasidus in general, but we're going to focus more on Chabad just because some of the sources are later, and there's video clips and audio clips about, about this, so we can actually see it happening live. Um, they also think a lot about the intersection between food, um, creating an ideal spiritual community, and actos, in, um, actos amongst the Jewish people. And we're going to see that they navigate this issue in a very, very different way, based on their spiritual worldview, based on their mystical worldview, based on the way they see people and food from a spiritual, mystical perspective. So that's going to, that is going to be our, our vision, our, 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 our task for today. To understand a little bit about Chabad Hasidut, to understand a little bit, of, a little bit about the ideology, a little bit about the spiritual outlook, a little bit about, a little bit about, a little bit about the lifestyle, and to see how food and community intersect within this broader framework. Great. Um, so, and we're going to see it in particularly in the context of a Farbringen. Has anybody here ever been to a Farbringen? Yeah. So, what is a Farbringen? If, if anybody wants to, wants to volunteer. 10 seconds, of, 10 seconds of awkward silence and then I'll go. Totally fine. I know so, it's, like a, it's like a meal and you serve, um, not only eat together and join like, and talk about like Torah wisdom or thoughts, but you also sort of, it's about improving your character and finding ways to sort of um, grow spiritually as well. Exactly. A fabrengen is a, it's a Yiddish word, which literally means a joyous gathering, a gathering of joy, where people come together from time to time to A, eat food together, B, talk Torah together, and C, sing together. And when there is a Rebbe, when there is a leader of this group, that is the person that is the, the lead, lead, the leads the singing, that is the person that, that gives over the Torah. But these elements are basically true of any Fabrankin. If you're talking about other Hasidic sects, it's, the term is not Fabrankin, the, the term is a tish. Tish literally means a table in Yiddish. People sit around the table and they listen to the very Torah. They listen to they listen to the words of Torah. They focus on self improvement. They sing together and they eat together. And this unique forum of a bringing or a tish, we're going to see, is not just a nice way for people to like get together on a Friday night or Saturday night or on any on any occasion. It actually has a lot of thought and a lot of ideology and a lot of ideology behind it. So. Without further ado, let us look at the source sheet. I'm gonna, I'm gonna share a screen. And, I, and again, at, at, some point during, at some point during this presentation, we'll be looking at the video clips, audio clips of uh, various, various Chabad get-togethers. So this is called a Drisha, Win Drisha Wintersman, Food and Community Number Two, The Power of a Fabrenkin. Um, I, I, chose, I chose a picture of a woman's Fabrenkin because in Chabad in particular, um, men Fabrenkin, women Fabrenkin, but they Fabrenkin separately. Um, again, because of the because of the differences, because of the you know, issues of modesty and mixing of the genders in, in Hasidut, they don't Fabrengen together. But it, it's so important that each group Fabrengens, that they have to have Fabrengen separately. So here you have a woman who is leading the Fabrengen sitting at the head of the table. You see the food around, you see she, she is sharing Torah. At some point during this event, they will, they will sing together, they will talk Torah together. At some point, sometimes they go around the room and everybody, everybody shares something, either something personal or words of Torah. And they, and, and they often it goes deep into the night. Good. But first, some background. 
first we're gonna have to first before we get to the fibrangian, before we get to the way food um, is integrated into a fibrangian and why food is why food is integrated into fibrangian, we have to take a look about we have to take a look at Hasidut and community. Because if anybody is familiar with the history of Hasidut, you will come across the notion that as opposed to other groups within Jewish history, particularly within Orthodox Judaism, that sometimes focus on the elite, they focus on the study of Torah, they focus on the rabbis, they focus on the people who are people of great piety, Hasidut from its earliest iterations in the 1700s had a very populist attitude to it. In the sense that the Baal Shem Tov, who died in 1760, who was the founder of this movement, um, he sort of, he sort of you know, jumped, he, well, he himself was, according to, according to the account, a Torah scholar, but instead of hanging out, with, hanging out with other Torah scholars, he spent his day with the simple folk. He said he spent his day with the regular Jews of the street, with the shoemakers, with the cobblers, with the, with the shepherds, with the storekeepers, and the stories about the Baal Shem Tov are about his interactions with these people. I think the classic, classic story in Hasidot, one of the classic stories is that is that um, is that there is this is a story about the Baal Shem Tov himself that the Baal Shem Tov was once davening in a shul on Rosh Hashanah, and he was davening very fervently. He was a Kabbalist and he was very mystical and it was, everything was very spiritual. And at some point, he stopped praying. He was the leader of the congregation. He stopped praying and walked to the back of the shul. And in the back of the shul, there was a little boy who was who was who was sitting there in the back by himself. And the Baal Tov told him, you have to come to the front. You have to stand up, up, stand up there in the beam on the platform and the platform together with me. And that's what happened. And afterwards, the students of the Baal Tov asked him, like, what was going on? Why did you go to this, to this little boy? And the Baal Tov said, because that little boy is a shepherd. He doesn't know how to pray. He doesn't know how to read. He's illiterate. But he sat in the back of the shul reciting the olive base, the Hebrew alphabets. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, over and over and over again, because that is all this person knew. And that was the way he connected to the day of Rosh Hashanah. He wanted to pray, but he didn't know the words. He was illiterate and nobody ever taught him. So he was just sitting there reciting the Aleph base, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey. And it was Dafka, it was specifically that boy's prayers, which pierced the heavens and is going to make our prayers more accepted. And that's why I, he had to stand together with me on the platform, the center of the shul, because it was his prayers that were going to carry the prayers, carry the prayers of the congregation. So you have somebody who is a real mystic. The Baal Shem Tov speaks about dreams that he had, mystical visions that he had, his you know, an ascent of the soul that he had that he had up to heaven. Take it or leave it. These are the, we have these things in the traditions and the writings of the Baal Shem Tov himself. There's one letter, a personal letter he sent to his brother-in-law, which scholars think is 100% from the Baal Shem Tov's hands. Um, like historians, academics think that this is 100% from the Baal Shem Tov's hands. Um, it was not meant for public consumption. His brother-in-law published it after the Baal Shem Tov died. And it is entirely about how one, uh, one, one night in Rosh Hashanah, when the Baal Shem Tov went to sleep, his soul ascended to the heavens and he spoke with various angels. He spoke with various deceased tzaddikim, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Talking about a real mystical group, the Hasidim. Yet at the same time, who do they honor? the same time, who do they value the most? The simple Jew, that child in the back of the shul who's just reciting the olive base. And it's this sort of dichotomy, this paradox. You have these people that are, that are 
knowledgeable in Torah, and they're spiritually elite, and they're having dreams and visions, and aliyot neshama, and their souls are ascending to heaven. Well, at the same time, who are the people they want to hang out with? Who are the people they want to talk to? Who are the people they want to connect with? Not only the spiritual elite, but even the amcha, even the people in the back of the shul who don't know how to read, and presumably not well-versed in Jewish law or Jewish ritual or Jewish practice. It's this paradox that made Hasidut so fascinating to the people in Eastern Europe in the 1700s where it started, and also to scholars today, people like me that sort of have studied this, have, have practices, that it's such an interesting combination. Um, source number one is from Rabbi Almost Dr. Eli Rubin. He is a, a friend of mine. I'll give him a shout out. Anything he writes is, is, un, is uh, unbelievably erudite. He is a Chabad Hasid, born and bred. He lives in a Chabad, in a Chabad community. Um, he is very well versed in Chabad Hasidut internally. Um, at the same time, he is towards the end of a PhD in Hasidut from like a more academic perspective. So he knows Hasidut both from the inside and from the outside. He wrote an article last year um, in a book entitled Jewish Spirituality and Social Transformation, Hasidism and Society. Then Hasidism is not just about you know, personal mystical experiences and personal joy and prayer and debekut and communion with God, but it's also about community. But let, let's read the introduction to his article, at least part of it. He writes as follows. Mystical experience is usually understood to belong to intrinsically to the realm of the individual, to the private realm of consciousness and contemplation. Almost all studies of Jewish mysticism, mysticism take this assumption as an unquestioned axiom and unquestioned axiom and assume accordingly that it constitutes an inherent counterpoint to the realm of social interaction and real world practice. If you think about the Kabbalists of the Middle Ages, if you think about the Chavirim and the sectarians that we discussed in the last class, they were in, they were in the focus on on their on their deep, you know, on their deep on their on their experiences, on their religious experiences, on their, on their spiritual experiences. And that was that was that's a counter, that's in conflict with regular social interactions. It is partly for this reason that the modern movement of Hasidism has been an object of fascination, both in scholarly literature and in popular culture. Hasidism, which took root in Eastern Europe in the latter part of the 18th century and is today especially vibrant in Israel and the United States, is enchanting and sometimes disturbing to others, precisely because it's simultaneously characterized by mystical spirituality and this worldly exuberance, by elitist es esotericism and exoteric populism. Again, a fancy way of saying, you have a group of people that are focused on spiritual experiences, on singing and mystical experiences and dreams and divine inspiration. All of these things appear in the early Hasidic texts. At the same time, very into community, very into simple people. And he didn't see a conflict between those two poles. That had never before happened in the history of Jewish mysticism. If you think of mystics, you think of you know, Christian monks that we discussed like, like we saw, like we saw on, on Monday's session. Somebody, somebody brought up somebody brought up on Monday, Monday session where Buddhist monks, they don't live in regular society. They isolate themselves in order to focus on their spirituality. Hasidism was the opposite. People vary into their spirituality, but also vary into community at the same time. How do those two things jive? And how does food integrate into that vision? Great, so far so good? 
So let's, before we look at a Farbrengen and before we look at texts from the last Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, who, is, uh, who is gonna be the main person we're gonna be focusing on today, we have to look at the background. Um, source number two is from Tanya. Um, has, has, anybody here had a, has anybody here had experience studying Tanya in the past? No, great. Tanya is a, was, was, a, was one of the first books published in the Hasidic movement. The author is Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, the first, the first leader of the Chabad sect of Hasidut. Um, Shneer Zalman of Liadi, was, uh, he, he died in, in I think, 18, 1812. So his, uh, his leadership spans the late 1700s, early, early 1800s. He was one of these charismatic figures that just arose out of, the, uh, out of, out of, out of masses. He was, uh, was one of these meritocracies. He didn't have particular ethos. He wasn't born in, born, was not born into a rabbinic family. He was known as a, at a young age as a child prodigy. He was a composer. He was knowledgeable in the sciences, very charismatic. Um, by the time he died, according to Russian government records, he had at least 40,000 people that defined themselves, self-defined as his students. So he went from somebody who was a nobody to 40,000 people being self-defined as his students. The Russian government got involved with him. They thought he was embezzling money to, uh, embezzling money to various, various foreign countries. He was arrested for a while. Like he was, he was a figure. He wasn't just like somebody living out there on the boondocks. Um, he was a leader of a small movement in, in Russia in the late 1700s, early, 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 early 1800s. He wrote the first sort of like organized book of Hasidic philosophy. Up until him, the Hasidic philosophy, the, these, types of, these types of Torah that they would, the Hasidim would teach were around the Parsha of the week, around the holidays. You know, people would sit around on the Parsha of the week, they'd discuss the Parsha of the week. They would discuss, they would discuss the relevant holiday. He decided it was necessary to take the basic ideas of Hasidut, which again are mystical, Kabbalistic, spiritual, and set them out in an organized fashion. And that's exactly what he does. Tanya is a fascinating book. It's been republished like, a, like I forgot, I think, I forget, I'm forgetting how many times, like 400 times since. It's one of the most published Jewish books outside of the, outside of like the basic canon of the Bible, the Talmud, Haggad, and Sidurium, and the Haggadah Shalpasach. Um, you'll find dozens of translations on, 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 online. If, if you're if you're interested, and he walks you through the nature of the soul as he sees the nature of the soul. He walks you through the, you know psychology, literally psychology from a uh, from a capitalistic perspective, and how you and how your under, your understanding of the self, understanding of the world around you from a spiritual perspective, can help you in your service of God and you're in your functioning as a as a proper as a proper human being. It's a fascinating book, hard to read, but, but a fascinating book. Uh, most of the book is really about you understanding your soul, understanding your relationship with God, understand, and understanding your relationship with like the cosmos around you. It's very little interpersonal stuff. Chapter 32 is the one chapter in Tanya that focuses on interpersonal relationships and how these interpersonal relationships integrate into a spiritual worldview. Again, generally speaking, you think of social, think of social engagements you know, chatting with your friend, hanging out with your kids, whatever it is, is not really being so connected with the life of spirituality and meditation, contemplation, which he demands of you in the book. But at the same time, chapter, chapter 32 tries to bring these things together. Um, it's important that chapter 32 is Lamed Bet. What, is, what does Lamed Bet spell in, uh, in Hebrew? Anybody know? Um, Lev. Exactly, Lev. This is the heart of Tanya. So even though it's only one chapter, he put it, this is a Chabad tradition, at least. I don't know, we don't, we don't have this in writing from him, that he put it in chapter 32, because he wanted to indicate that even though it's only one chapter in this broader book, 
it is actually the heart of his of his bunk and it's the heart of his philosophy. So let's see. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna screen share. I'm gonna we're gonna go from talking about the nature of the soul to talking about the nature of your engagement with other people. Chapter, sorry, I, I, I wrote, I, actually, that's funny. I wrote down the wrong chapter. It's not Lamed Vav, it's Lamed Bet. My, my apologies. Um, and this translation is from, it's from Chabad.org. Chabad.org is the, is the, according to, if I recall correctly, according to Google statistics, is the most hit Jewish website. It's a fascinating thing, but uh, this, this translation is from Chabad.org. He writes as follows. Acting on the suggestion mentioned above, to view one's body with scorn and contempt, and finding joy only in the joy of the soul alone. In the previous chapters, what he told you to do, again, this is a little bit harsh, contemporary Chabad softens this a little bit, but it's to ident self-identify as a soul, don't self-identify as a body. And you have to sit there in the corner of your room and meditate that I, I know I have a body, my body is important, it's an important vehicle, it's part of who I am as a person. But deep, deep down, my inner truest identity, my essential self is a soul. And what is a soul in Tanya, in Hasidic philosophy? It is a spark of God, a spark of the divine. As the Pasuk says, that God blew into man, into Adam Chava, a soul. And the Zohar, the early, early Kabbalistic text described that part of God, when you blow, when you breathe out, you're taking something that's deep within, deep within you and exhaling it. So when God, so to speak, again, this is all this 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 is all an, all a parable, an analogy, or whatever it is. But in the imagery used by the Bible, when God exhales out and the, the breath goes into the human being, and that becomes the human being's soul, it means part of God, something deep down, like in God's lungs, so to speak, is being exhaled by God, and that's what becomes the soul of the human being. So if you self-identify as a soul, what's going to happen? This is a direct and easy way to attain the fulfillment of the commandment, thou shalt love thy fellow as thyself, toward every soul of Israel, both great and small. If you self-define as a soul as opposed to a body, you are naturally going to love all other Jews. We're gonna, this obviously raises a lot of questions, a lot of ethical questions. A lot of, um, I, I know of cases of Tanya Shi'uri, and Tanya lectures in different synagogues in England, in America and England, that were started but were stopped because of Tanya's descriptions of non-Jews. We're going to bracket that. We're, we're going to bracket that issue entirely. Maybe if there's a maybe a different opportunity, we'll be able to discuss Hasidut and, and non-Jews. Um, just just to note, to the Babat Rebbe, the, um, the, the the scion of this tradition, he received a, a, congress, a congressional gold medal by the U.S. Congress for his uh, for his being a voice of of morality and spirituality. Um, congressional uh, in America. The Congressional Gold Medal is the highest civilian award to be awarded by Congress. Other religious leaders that they got it were like Mother Teresa and, and, and the Dalai Lama. So Mother Teresa, the Dalai Lama, and the Baba Cherebi were people who you know, got the Congressional Gold Medal. So even though there are harsh statements about non-Jews in Chabad literature, um, the last leader of Chabad so, um, found a way of getting around them, so to speak, or doing something with them, but that's, that's not for us right now. But what he's saying over here is that if you self-identify as a soul, you're going to love other people. Why? Because if you self-identify as a soul and you realize that what really matters about you is your spiritual essence, what does that mean about the other people around you? What really matters about them? Also, their spiritual essence. I'm a soul, you're a soul. And what do we know about souls? Where do, where do all souls come from? 
they all come from God and God is one. So you put all the facts together. If, I'm, if I self-identify as a soul, I contemplate that I really I'm a soul deep down and my body is a vehicle, whatever it is, but really, really my, my essential identity is that of a soul. And then I do the same exercise towards everybody else. I will start seeing them not as their flesh and blood, not even as their human personality, not, as, not in terms of the way they act towards me or towards other people or their whatever, whatever it is. When I see, I see all those things, but deep, deep, deep down, beyond or, be, or, or beyond all those layers, there is a divine soul within. And my soul and that other person's soul have to be connected because they, all the souls of the world come from God. And therefore, if you think about yourself in a spiritual way and you apply that same act, mental exercise to everybody else, everybody is united. Everybody is connected. We're all part of God. Look at the next paragraph. For whereas one despises and loathes one's body, well, for the soul and the spirit, who can know their greatness and their excellence and the root and the source and the living God? If I think of myself as a soul, that means the other person I'm looking at, I'm interacting with, is also a part of God. And therefore, I'm naturally attracted towards that person. Being moreover, all of a kind and all having one father, therefore, all Israelites are called real brothers by virtue of the source of their souls in the one God, only the bodies are separated. Why would I not like another person? Because they run me the wrong way. They act, they act in an unethical way. They, 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 they're interested in topics that I'm just not interested in. So you either, you, you're either apathetic or you dislike other people you interact with. But if you are trained to think about all those things as surface levels, but really identify the other person as a part of God, your, your interactions with that person are gonna to be totally, totally different. And therefore, according to Tanya, according to this book, according to Hasidic philosophy, the more I self-identify, the more I look at the world and myself through a spiritual lens, the deeper my connection and the deeper my sense of unity is going to be with every other human soul, i.e. every other human being on the planet. The person might be annoying. The person might, you know, I may not enjoy the topics of conversation but I'm going to feel a deep affinity, a deep emotional connection to that person because they are part of God, I'm part of God, and therefore we're all united, we're all connected. And that's why he says that if you look at the rabbinic tradition, the rabbinic tradition places this mitzvah about Yisrael, loving other Jews, on a pedestal. It says loving other Jews is one of the most important mitzvahs in the entire Torah. When Hillel when one of the sages of the Talmud had a, had, a, had a candidate for conversion in front of him, and the candidate for conversion said, hello, or Rabbi Hillel, whatever he said, I want you to teach me the entirety of Torah while I'm standing on one foot. So what did Hillel respond? Or the, the, Aramaic, the Aramaic, Aramaic translation of that, love your fellow Jew. And that, he says, that is the great principle of the Torah, and everything else is a derivative. So all the interpreters, all the commentators in the Talmud are trying to figure out why is having proper interpersonal relationships, acting ethically towards other Jews, why is that the Kla Gadol, the, the most basic foundational principle of the Torah? So what Hasidus explains, what the Tanya explains, is that if you really love other Jews, it means that you're looking at the world through a divine lens, you're looking at the world through a spiritual lens. Because the only way to love other people, to love everybody, is to look at them as a divine soul. Because otherwise, bodies, personalities, interests um, do do separate between people, um, and it's it's no, it's natural that they separate between people. And you're not going to love everybody equally. 
But you could develop a certain sense of love towards everybody if you train yourself to think about yourself spiritually and think about other people spiritually as well. And that's how, at least in, in Tanya, in his early book in Kosidot, that's why you have this intersection between, between, um, between a spiritual lens and loving every other person, no matter how learned, no matter how pious, no matter how, how, um, how like-minded that person happens to be. Um, any comments or questions up until now? And we'll see, we'll see how food integrates into this in a couple of minutes. Great. So let's, let's go back to the source sheet for a second. Um, and we will, um, you know what, before we look at the, before we look at the source sheet, let, let's look at a sample for Ringen from, from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Lubavitcher Rebbe was the last leader of the Chabad movement of Chassidot. He died in 1994. So there are, there are lots of video clips, lots of audio clips, a lot, a lot of people, I mean, if there, if there, if there are people who are, who are older than me um, in, the, in this crowd, you might've, you might've, might've, you know, might've met the Rebbe, you might've gotten a dollar from him, you might've, atten might've, might've attended a Febrengen. Um, but we'll, let's look at a Febrengen and we'll see um, what type of togetherness this, this social cohesion, these types of Febrengen had, and then we'll, we'll see where, where, the, where, where the food factor is at. Um, so let me, let me share a screen. Share sound, optimize for video clip. Um, this song that we're about to, we're about to see is a song in Russian, it's an old Chabad song. It means I fear nothing, I fear nobody, there is nothing other than God. That's the meaning of this, uh, the basic thing in Russian. So the, uh, the singing can last for hours, the speeches will last for hours. He was known to speak for six or seven hours a pop at these Febregans. He would go on to like three, four in the morning. Um, they are, there are 70,000 pages, literally 70,000 pages of transcriptions of these speeches that are, that are available, that are in, that are in print. Um, and students and scholars are just going through them. And there he was, he was a genius, literally a genius. At the first Febregan, you can look at a picture on the source sheet, but a little bit further down, there were like 30, 40 people. Um, it, Chabad was almost a dead movement after World War II. Um, in 1951, he took over as the seventh and last leader, the Rebbe of Chabad, and he created what we know of Chabad today as a, one of the most you know, active and important global Jewish movements around the world. I think Chuck Schumer has joked that he's traveled the world in his, uh, in, in his role in foreign affairs in the Senate. And the only two constants in all countries he's visited are Coca-Cola and Chabad. Um, so that's a contemporary, contemporary, contemporary political humor or whatever. 
Um, so let's let's get a sense. What is the power of a Fabrengan other than just people coming together and singing? And where where and where and where does food come in? So I'm going to share something. Sorry, can I add something to what you were saying because I just happened to be reading about this, and it's a little bit relevant, but a bit off topic. But yes. the, the Rebbe in Chabad was very pioneering, and they would brought by telephone. They would have hookups around the world, so it wasn't just if you could make your way to Brooklyn. You can hear the Pabrengan anywhere. They would have a phone hookup, and they were also very pioneering before the days of um, cable being so prominent. And kind of reminds me of today that they had they were one of the first pioneers with, uh, with satellites that would transmit the Fabrengans. So people yeah. would be gathering around wherever they are in the world to listen, not just in Brooklyn, which is kind of interesting. Yes. And one other thing that just about the movement itself, and I could send you the link, but um, the Rebbe heard um, somebody relate to him, President Kennedy's speech about the Peace Corps and sending volunteers out around the world. And the, the light bulb went off of the Rebbe's head and that's how we started sending out emissaries around the world, sort of modeled after the Peace Corps. But that was back in 1961. So just that was an interesting side note Yes, yeah. how progressive they No, yeah, I think I think Steve, I think you're 100 right. He uh, he he well, he he himself was a scientist, meaning he had a um, he was an electrical engineer. Um, um, he graduated from a, I forgot the name of the school in Paris, and he actually worked um, when he first came to America at the very beginning of World War II. He worked in Brooklyn in the Brooklyn Navy Yards on um, for the Army. He was contracted out by the Army to work on electrical wiring of of ships, Navy ships. And then he was roped in to be, you know, to be in the, in the administration level of Chabad at some point. And then eventually, when his father-in-law, the sixth leader of Chabad, passed away, he was chosen to to take over. Um, so yeah, he always had a pro-science, um, pro pro-science orientation, and that's why Chabad was the first. I think the, one of some of the first Torah lectures on radio waves was from was from Chabad. Um, Chabad was one of the first Jewish groups to have a website, and they're still ahead of the curve in the sense that they their their website is the most hit Jewish website, as far as I'm aware. At least last time I checked, which was last year. Um, and yeah, it's a very it's very it's a very fascinating thing. And he did he sent out emissaries before Kennedy's speech, but he and you quoted Kennedy afterwards. Sorbonne, thank you so much. Um, and it wasn't I think I'm a, I think that's a myth. I don't think it was Sorbonne. I think he was uh, I think that was. Hasidim say he, he got a, he got a degree in, in the Sorbonne. It was really it was really someplace else. I'm, it was a lesser no, lesser known college. Um, but I, I could send out a link afterwards. Um, but yeah, but it's but it's fascinating. So let, let's look a little bit about the theory behind a Fabrengen and where food comes in. So let's go back to the source sheet. Um, source page three. Source. Let's skip sources three and four for a second. Let's look at source number five. This is from a speech he gave in Tafshim and Val, which is 1986. So not so long ago. Um, 1986, about the power of a Ferengian, of people coming together to sing and eat together. So he writes as follows. He said as follows. I mean, what's written in English? This is a, this is the source number five is a quotation from the Zohar from one of the earliest Jewish mystical texts. One time, the world needed rain. There was a drought. They came before Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the uh, the alleged author of the Zohar. The one, the founder, one of the founders of the Jewish mystical tradition. He began and said the chapter in Tehillim, in Psalms, a song of ascent of David, Shir HaMa'alot David. Behold, how good and how pleasant 
It is for brothers, for siblings to dwell together. So here's a story. Again, the story happened, didn't happen. It's not, that's not our, not our issue. But the story goes that there was a drought in the time of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, an early Jewish mystic. And his students came to him and said, the world needs rain. So what did he do? Generally speaking, you would assume he would pray for rain. He would call, off, call for everybody to repent, to give extra tzedakah, give charity, whatever it is. He said that he stood there and he recited the chapter in Tehillim that lauds people living together in peace and harmony. And through this, it began to rain. Through the recitation and presumably the living, the actual lived experience of people living together in peace and harmony, that's what caused the rain. So the Baba Sharebi says, through this, Rashbi hinted that the notion of brothers dwelling together, Shevet Achim Gam Yachad, which represents love and unity amongst the Jewish people, is the path and the vessel for drawing down all the blessing, all the blessings, beginning with the blessings of rain. What's going on? Rain is the paradigmatic blessing in the Bible. It's, it's almost always at the top in the, fr in the front of the list of what's going to happen if the Jewish people do the Jewish people act properly. How did the rain come down? Through love and unity. So what we see, according to the Baba Cherebi from the story, that based again, the, the mystical tradition is teaching us that love and unity and community is actually what draws down all of the blessings. So as opposed to saying that the, the best way to attain high levels of spirituality is through living you know, an elite life by yourself with like-minded people with, in monks with a monastery and with the sectarians of Qumran, whatever it is. But at the same time, we have another counterbalance, counter value of like, you know, Jewish people and unity among the Jewish people. And how do we balance these two things? This tradition is saying, no, the, actually there is no conflict there whatsoever. The only way to bring down blessings, spiritual blessings and physical and material blessings is through living as a community, is through living together as a single unified people. And the Baba Shrebi, what he went on to explain, this is, this, is, this is a quotation from later in the speech. The notion of love and unity amongst the Jewish people is most revealed when many Jews are gathered in a single place as one person with one heart, and that the purpose of this gathering is that one person should help another to increase in all good things, including especially the great principle of love and unity amongst the Jewish people. What is the purpose? Love and unity amongst the Jewish people brings down all the blessings, spiritual blessings, material blessings, everything being represented by rain. How do you foster that? How do you manifest that? How do you create an environment where there's love and unity amongst the Jewish people? Have a farbrengen. Bring everybody together to the same room where everybody is united. Everybody is there for the similar goal. Everybody is sing literally you know, standing shoulder to shoulder and singing together. And this goal of love and unity is especially accomplished when this gathering includes even a simple meal. And even more particularly, the saying of l'chaim on wine, which increases closeness. Great is eating, which draws near. What is the ultimate purpose of a, of a Fabringen? It's to create community. 
again, Fabrengans were separate. For men, they were separate Fabrengans for men and Fabrengans for women. Um, but the Fabrengans were, you know, the, Rebbe, the Rebbe held Fabrengans for women. This, the singing wasn't there, but the, the Torah and the Achtos, um, again, I'm, I was never there, but the Torah and the Achtos apparently was, was, was emphasized. But what is the purpose of a Fabrengan? It's to create an environment and foster love and unity amongst the Jewish people. Because it's dafka, that environment, that brings down all of the blessings. You can't be a spiritual elite and not eat together with other people. Because then you're not going to be able to become a spiritual elite. The only way for you to get the, the material and spiritual blessings is when you're amongst the community. And how do we foster that? By literally putting as many people as possible in a single room. And how do you foster community even more after everybody's together in a single room? By eating together. Gadolagima, great is eating, which draws people close. And in Chabad and Chasidot, it's not just eating together, it's making a lachaim. What does it mean to make a lachaim? It's to drink together. Drink a little bit of drink a little bit of alcohol. Eat a little bit of whatever, whatever, whatever food, whatever, whatever food gets served. And the food. Based on this Talmudic passage, and the social reality, that people feel closer when they're eating together, having as many Jews as possible in a room together, singing together, hearing different Torah together, but also eating together, is going to create this community of Abbas Yisrael, of, lo of love of the other people in the room, love of all Jews. And that love of all Jews, that community, is going to be able to bring down all of the material and spiritual blessings. So the Fabrengen in Chabad, the Fabrengen in the, in the Hasidic world is not just like a nice thing to do. You know, you, you, want, you, you want people to do good things on a Friday night or a Saturday night. So you create a Fabrengen so they aren't like, you know, going to the movies or whatever it is. No, it's much more than that. It's that one of the ideals on the pillars of the community is community, is love of other people. And the best way to do that is get people together and eat together and sing together and share the Torah together, share words of Torah together. And by doing so, they're going to love each other and feel close, feel as close as possible to each other that much more. And that's why drinking and eating has to be part and parcel of, part and parcel of the Fabrengen. And that's why Fabrengens in Chabad are not, they're not just like, you know, community is, a, is in conflict with spirituality. The Torah of the Rebbe, the Rebbe's most spiritual, deepest teachings were only possibly to, possible to be said in the context of a Fabrengen. That's what, that's, what, that's what the Chabad Hasidim claim. The deepest Kabbalistic teachings of a, of a Hasidic Rebbe were always only given over in the context of a, of a Fabrengen, despite the fact that most people in the Fabrengen had no idea what the Rebbe was talking about. You could watch videos of this. They were all sleeping when he was talking. He was talking Hasidus, talking Kabbalah, talking mysticism, talking spirituality, quoting lots of Torah sources. The average person there had no idea what he was talking about. And still, he was only able to get that level of, of spirituality, that level of Torah, when he was in the context of a community. And food was an integral part of creating that level of community. That's why if you ever go to a Chabad Fabrengen, people bless each other at a Fabrengen. Um, there, is, there is a custom that the Rebbe used to bless people, people bless the Rebbe. If there's no Rebbe around, everybody blesses each other. Why do people bless each other out of a brinkin? That you, you have a bracha for, you know, for health, for to do well on a test, to do whatever. I've heard all, sort, all sorts of blessings at, at Fabrengen's. 
Because it's not Ka'edah for Rengen when God is present, because God is present in the community. And therefore, when God is present, that is the best time possible to offer, to offer a blessing. If you want, if you want to see this in a in fancier, fancier, more fancier, more, more, more academic language, this is a picture of the first Frebrengen that the Lubavitch Rebbe ever had, 1951, when he assumed the leadership of Chabad. Um, it's hard to see, but um, this is Lubavitch Rebbe, and, and he was in his 40s. Two seats to his left was, was, was Shlomo Karlbach, who at that point was Chabad, Samai Chabad Chassid, and then they went off, went off and did his own thing afterwards. But you could see there's a major difference between 1951, when there were like hardly anybody in the room, and what we saw in the video from the 1980s. Good. Um, Philip Wexler is a fascinating person. I met, I met him twice. He is a sociologist. Um, he was a sociologist, I'm forgetting where in America, then, then at Hebrew University. I'm here in Israel for, for, for a while, and I was retired. And he has written about, about this aspect of Hasidut, how most mystical movements are antisocial, um, and since they want to create their, their own subgroup and live apart from the rest of society, while Hasidut in particular, and Chabad Hasidut um, in, in particular, particular is, a, is a populist but spiritual movement. And he writes about it for Rengen. He says that Hasidism should rightfully be understood as fundamentally socio-mystical. Again, socio-mystical, it's a term he coined. It's social, but it's also mystical. In its, in it, in its phenomenological constitution, in the, way that it's, in, the way, in the way that it's experienced. In light of this conception, it can be, can be further suggested that it's specifically in a Fabrengen, among the gathered Hasidim, that the Rebbe is transformed into a font of divine illumination and communication. The Rebbe alone, as spiritual and as amazing as a, as a Hasidic leader is supposed to be, cannot reach the height of spirituality on his own. It must be in the context of a community. And that's why he has to eat together with his Hasidim to foster that sense of community. You want to see, and so when the, when the Fabrengans were smaller, it was much easier. Everybody was sitting around a table, eating together, drinking lachayim. There's personal conversations going on. When they got much larger, you know, it, became, it, became, it became a little harder. So if you want to see a video of what the leader Fabrengans were like in terms of people drinking, drinking and eating together, um, let me let me let me let me just show you one. Let me just show you one short clip. <laughs> Rendering the kids were not given alcohol; it's grape juice. Um, so you see, the, during the singing, the kids and everybody, as we'll see, were raising their glasses and wishing everybody else l'chaim to life, and blessing everybody else at at blessing everybody else at the gathering. There was a cameraman there. The rebel was very was very concerned that he, the cameraman should also give whatever food and drinks were on the table. So as you saw, he would, he just drank his l'chaim. Um, vodka was the what was the alcohol that was was the preferred alcohol that was served. Um, as we'll see.
right? It's a fascinating thing that you're singing, you're being spiritual, but at the same time, you're blessing everybody else because it's through the food and through the togetherness that is the source of divine blessing. Um, and, that, and, and that's why all of these things, the Torah and the community and the food all come together in a single setting, which is, which is a fabrinkin. Um, it's, it's fascinating that this idea is not just you know, something which, which, which uh, stopped when the Lubavitcher Rebbe died in 1994, but it's carried on until today. Um, there, is a, um, there is a fascinating podcast, which, um, which a, a lot of Orthodox Jews are into, called Headlines. Um, it's run by, the, the host is somebody named David Lichtenstein, who learned in a more Haredi a traditional yeshivot in Mir in Israel, and then Lakewood in Lakewood in New Jersey. Um, then he entered real estate. Now he's worth, I think, $1.6 billion. Um, he, so he's, he made it, made it in real estate. Um, in the last couple of years, you could Google, you could Google him, David Lichtenstein, um, net, net worth or net value. I think it was $1.6 last time I checked. Um, he, but he's also a huge Torah scholar. And he started this podcast um, taking issues in the Orthodox community. And he goes, says, from, a Hasidot, from, a, from an ultra-Orthodox until, like, until modern Orthodox, then that's, that's his range. That he, the, the types of issues he wants to discuss. And he gets various people and interviews them about hot button issues. So last year, he had a podcast about, about the legalization of marijuana because it, marijuana was legalized in Canada, I think last year or two years ago, maybe I'm forgetting exactly when, two years ago, three years ago already. Oh, well, I'm sorry, early. I'm something of that sort. I think the podcast was 2018. So I, mean, I think, would, but uh, again, I, I don't remember exactly when it was legalized. It's legalized in many states, many recreational marijuana is legalized in many states in the US. It's only a matter of time until it's legalized all, it's, it's legalized all throughout the US. I think all the polls show that this is not a Democratic or Republican issue. It's an age issue, meaning people below the age of 30 are generally speaking pro the legalization of marijuana. I don't know if people in this group, people in this, in this Zoom session think about this one way or the other, but I think the study, this, the polls are that people of the age of most of the people I can see um, are pro the legalization of recreational marijuana. Not that I, not that you have to say such a thing. Google, Google it and see if, see if you think the polls are accurate. Um, so he discussed this from a Torah perspective. One is what is the halachic Torah Jewish perspective about the legalization of recreational marijuana? Because many Jews, many Orthodox Jews, consume alcohol. The Torah, even if you're living an Orthodox halachic lifestyle, alcohol is part of the lifestyle. When does an Orthodox halachic, when does a halachically Orthodox Jew drink alcohol? Like every other day, <laughs> if you're, even if you're doing it. If you're um, Kiddush on, on Friday night, as I, according to some, uh, many people make Kiddush and grape juice, but according to many opinions, it has to have alcohol content. The four cups at the Seder, also according to many opinions, have to have some level, some level of alcohol content. Again, the, the list goes Purim, the Purim Suda, the Purim meal, according to many opinions, has to have some alcohol content. There are, there are ways, to get, the ways to get around this. But in particular, the Hasidic community is very into this notion. And Farbringans, as you saw, they raised you know, cups of vodka um, when they wished people the high. The question was, if, you're, if, you, if you think that alcohol consumption should be part of the communal practice, again, within certain boundaries, obviously within certain boundaries, the Rebbe was very strict about, about not giving people too much alcohol, but alcohol was necessary to, uh, to create this community. So why not marijuana? So David Lichtenstein, Rabbi David Lichtenstein, um, asked this question to a, to, a, to a leading Chabad rabbi in, in, in Toronto, Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, 
who's on the board of Kashrut in Toronto. So he was somebody who was, who was like, who's like interested in this. So do you mind if I share with you a three minute clip in terms of his response? I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating topic. So here we go. Go for it. Here we go. Um, so they're, they, they're talking about the, um, how the Babish Rebbe used to drink a lot at Fabrenkins and would still, still be able to give over seven hours of Torah and greet people individually while standing up one by one until like three, until like three four in the morning. The whole thing was astounding. That the, yeah. it's off the charts. But but Bacholayfen, this is the question. So so hey Rabbi, you say you shouldn't drink marijuana. You use marijuana. You yourself say l'chayim, and and everybody knows that I'm purim. It's a it's a chayvinish l'bsumi v'puria, and and the Gemara even says the kam rabba v'shachtel l'bzeira. So this is not a joke. This is kipshutei, and it's very very real. And uh, what could be wrong with marijuana? Why don't you want us to be happy, Rabbi? We want to be happy. We want to enjoy the the the, the Shabbos and and you know there's now marijuana brownies and everything is mutter and everything is kosher v'yosher and so on and so forth. So I want to first draw a distinction between alcohol and between narcotics because the Torah is very clear and very explicit in multiple levels as we've talked about when it comes to alcohol and never once does the Torah encourage the use of a mind-altering substance. You see, alcohol essentially is something that lowers inhibitions. It's, it's not as much as, as getting high, it's as much as feeling free and open. Yeah, and the Gemara. That, that's a, the Talmudic passage in Tractate Yoma, which says that if you start looking at your cup of wine, if you start drinking, the entire world seems flat to you. Meaning things which previously would like would be large hills, in the sense that they would be that you wouldn't try to you wouldn't try to accomplish those things. Everything is flat, everything is easy, everything, everything is possible. That's the way the world is to somebody who's drunk. Well, that means he's free and comfortable. He's free to express himself. Right. No it's not a question of it's not a question of he loses inhibition. Right. And when people lose inhibition, right. this brings togetherness. It brings social cohesion. It brings togetherness. The essence of Fabrengen is the actualization of the mitzvah of Avas Yisrael, of people being able to connect to each other, to relate to each other. Sometimes even there's techacha, but all of that has to be done in the spirit of Avas Yisrael, in the spirit of Ava, not Shalom, with any kind of negativity. So the reality is that consumption of alcohol brings people together. Whereas the use of narcotics, and especially marijuana, does exactly the opposite. It puts people into their own world. It, it, it removes them from others. It, it's the opposite of cohesion. And it gives them a state of, a state of complacency. Is that factual, of, Rabbi Kalman? I, I can't say this, sorry, is that really true? I, have, have, I've have never, you? I can't say it, sorry, either. I bar Hashem, I've never touched How do you, I'm like saying, that. Is that a, is that a I, I've thing? spoken to many, 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 many people who have used uh, marijuana and alcohol, and just about everybody said the same thing to me. Interesting. Wow. People don't smoke socially or, or, or using salad dressing or whatever it is in order to get together with other people, but they get, you know, they get high. They get high on their own. So, so I think that that's a very, very critical point. And, 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 and it... So this notion of a Fabrengan bringing people together and the alcohol lowering inhibition to create a community, he goes on to say, he emphasizes for like five minutes that obviously within boundaries and there are strict rules to how much to drink and who should be drinking, what age level, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in the end of the day, it does lower inhibitions, creates a community. 
supposed to smoking marijuana, again, I'm, I'm not judging, I don't know, I'm not asking people for their personal experiences, but he's claiming that it doesn't bring together the same level of social cohesion, and therefore it's not something that is going to help foster the type of experience that we want to have out of Ferengen, which is community, love of other Jews, which brings down all of the blessings. Um, so alcohol, food, yes. Narcotics, mar marijuana, no. Ask your local Chabad, Chabad rabbi if you want. But I, I thought that was a fascinating application of this, of this notion of what the purpose of a Ferengen is and how food and alcohol in particular are used to bring people together. A any comments or questions? Um, so let's. I have a quick question. Yeah, please. Um, so I'm thinking about Chal of Israel. Um, I know that a lot of Chabadnikim keep Chal of Israel, and a lot of modern Orthodox or Orthodox Jews do not. Um, I feel like a Fabrengan is great, but if you can't go to other people's houses, is the issue just like most people eat meat most of the time on Shabbos, so it's not a big deal, or like you really can't go to other people's houses if they don't keep the same level of kashrut that you do. I think you're right. I think, no, I think you're, what you're saying is, is, a, is a potential critique. And, I, and many Chabadniks would not go over to other people's homes if, they're in, if they do not have the, that strict level of kashrut. Um, and yeah, and, uh, they think the, 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 and I think the point is well taken. Meaning the Chabad is very inclusive, but it's almost always on their own terms, on their own right. ground. They're the ones creating the environment. Once they're right. out of their safe zone, so then that's when the boundaries come up. Right. So, so in that sense, it's kind of similar to the Chavirim from last time where you can you can't eat at their house, but they can come to your house if in that case, if they change their clothes, which I don't think Chabad makes you do. But, no, right um, but, but it's it kind of similar. Right. But it is. But there are still the Chavirim, they, you can they can come to your house if they changed if they change their clothing. Um, and they also don't bring any don't bring any food, but they're also it wasn't necessarily seen as like a value to invite as many people as possible as possible over. Over here, the only way to become a chaver, so to speak, the only way to to reach that that, that high level high level of spirituality is specifically through a communal setting. So that's the that is the the, innov the innovation of Chabad and why they want their meals to be as large and as inclusive as possible. But still, you're right on their own terms. One hundred percent. I will. Many people I know will not eat. Will not eat in my house. Um, and whatever it 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 is it, it it is what it is. Good. And I want to use the next twenty minutes or so to go one step beyond. Up until now, we've seen that that food is being used to foster community, which is the way of bringing down material and spiritual blessings. However, there is a Hasidic way of eating food. Um, a Hasidic theory about food that is also part of this part, part of this picture of how food comes to create community. And that is as follows. I'm going to share, share a screen again. Um, let's go on to, a, to, a, to an interpretation of the Baal Shem Tov of a verse in Torah. So this verse is actually on the title of the Drisha Winter's Man, that God says as follows. This is God speaking, God speaking to the Jewish people, or Moses speaking on the name of God to the Jewish people in, in the desert. And he afflicted you and he let you go hungry. And then he fed you the man, which you did not know, nor did your forefathers know, so that he would make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but rather by whatever comes forth from the mouth of God does man live. 
So why did the Jewish people not have any natural food when they were in the desert? And they were fed this man, they were fed this supernatural food to teach them that even when they entered the land of Israel and they become farmers and they're growing their own food, that really all their food has to be traced, all their food has to be traced back to God. Amazing, great. This verse, not by bread alone will a person live, has a very unique interpretation in Chabad, in, in Chassidut in general. Look at verse number 10 for a second. This is the, this is the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Chassidut, his interpretation of this verse. Clearly not the, 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 the literal meaning, because we're that, but this is his uh, homiletical interpretation. For not by bread alone. This refers to a time when a person is engaged solely in the physicality of the food without any spiritual yearnings. When the verse says you don't live by bread alone, it means you cannot gain sustenance if you're only involved in eating for physical nourishment. Will the person live? This refers to the soul of the person. It is referred to the ha'adam, the person of the definite article. Your soul is not going to be nourished from physical eating. How does your soul gain nourishment? So you might say from studying Torah, from prayer, from spirituality, from meditation. No, your soul gains sustenance from the food as well. Not from the physical material of the food, but rather by whatever comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. This means that when a person expresses the name of God with intention in a blessing, when a person makes a bracha, blesses God before he eats food, he arouses his spiritual side. And from this, will the person, the soul, live as it is nourished from the spiritual side of food? Meaning just as a person is comprised of a guf and an ashamba, a body and a soul, similarly, food has a body, has a physical casing, which is the nutrients and the taste and all those things. But there's also a spiritual side of food. And when you make a blessing, when you eat intentionally, when you think about what you're doing, you're not only gaining physical nourishment, but your soul is actually gaining nourishment from the spiritual essence of that food. Sounds very esoteric, but we'll see what it means in a second. For the Holy One, blessed be He, intentionally did this, that through the fact that He created the world and destroyed them, holy sparks fell into the four realms of, four, four realms of creation inanimate material, the flora, the fauna, the, the plants and the animals and humans, and there's a mission of human beings to elevate them. Does anybody, does anybody know what this is referring to? The holy sparks that fell into, that fell into the world and they have to be elevated? Have to be elevated? Isn't it like the, um, like people kind of take, yeah, so sort of that idea to sort of take the sparks and make them holy, but a lot of people interpret it as like tikkun alam, so sort of tikkun alam being like a social thing, but also more so when you look at the deep meaning of it, sort of taking the sparks and elevating them, bringing them back to the source and taking the physical things and bringing with like um, spirituality or religious content within, like when you like sit at a table, you know, just like, yes, it's a physical table, but there's also sparks in this that when you like eat and make a bracha on it or say kiddush, there's also elevating it, I guess. You know, exactly, exactly, exactly. That, 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 that the term tikkun olam, earlier Jewish literature, um, it, was, it wasn't coined, but it was, it was popularized by the Arizal, by a 16th century mystic in Sfat. And he taught that all of the physical items of this world contain divine sparks. 
that the same way there's a soul of a human being, which we understand as, as some, are, some other part of God, um, and our, our purpose is to elevate our soul such that it can reconnect with God, the same thing is true with every object we interact with around the world. Everything has a spark of divinity within it. And it's the job of the human race to go walk around the world and to do proper things, to use every object for a positive purpose. And by doing so, you're elevating that, sort of speak, that divine spark, that spiritual spark, and you're elevating it and reconnecting it back to its source, God himself, some, somewhere up in the heavens. So the same way your body gets nourished by physically eating the food, at the same time, there is a spiritual process that, 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 that is taking place. It's not by bread alone that you live, but it's by the word of God that you live. Again, the simple meaning of the verse is that by the word of God, meaning God is the one who gives you the food. But this, but this, the Hasidic reading of the verse is by the word of God that you live, means that there's a word of God, there's part of God, there's a divine spark, so to speak, that is encased in that food. And when you eat that food in the proper context for the proper reasons, the proper manners in, in, a, in a positive way, you are elevating part of the spiritual realm and therefore being metaking, fixing that object. And when all the objects around the world, all the people around the world get fixed, that ushers in the messianic era. Um, and there, and yeah, and it's, fast, it's a fascinating study to see how the phrase tikkun olam in the 16th century means a spiritual process when you get to like the 1900s, the 20th century, it means social justice. But it's based on the same principle that is, Judaism is not just about us and my spirituality. It's about going around the world and elevating things and fixing things, fixing things spiritually or fixing things in a social, in a social justice type of way. But either way, fixing things. And that's how the word, that is the, that is the common denominator of the, of the, of the term tikkun olam. And the Hasidic reading of, the, of this verse go, goes, goes farther. It says that when, when you are attracted to certain food items, sometimes it's hard to explain why you're attracted to that food item and another food item. Why do I like why do I like chocolate more than vanilla? Why do I like grapes? Why do I like grapes more than apples? So on a certain level, because there's certain taste buds, now we all have a certain there's a, there, there's a certain biology that we're that we're created with, and we're attracted to certain tastes. But the Balshantov taught that each of us as a human being has certain divine sparks that we are missionized, that we have a mission to elevate. And we are the only ones that can elevate those divine sparks. And therefore, whatever food items, whatever items, physical items in the world that you're attracted to, that is really not just your taste buds speaking, not just, not just your subconscious speaking, but also your soul speaking. Your soul yearns for that food item because it wants you to eat that food item with proper manners, to bless God as you're eating it, to eat it in this context of a fabrengen, in the context of social cohesion, um, and as a way of fostering unity and community. And by doing so, you're going to elevate that divine spark, which only you can elevate. Um, and that's why you know, eating is not just a physical way, not just a physical thing, it's not just a psychological and a social thing that it brings people together, it is actually a spiritual practice. And that's why the, you know, the real, real hardcore Hasidim, not, not, the, not the masses, but, but the elite, the Rebbas, they would often spend minutes, you know, tens of minutes blessing God before they actually sat down or meditating before they ate because they wanted to eat with the proper intentionality. Again, they would eat together with everybody, with everybody else, but at the same time, there was a spiritual process. That, there was a spiritual process that, 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 that was unfolding. Great, great. Does 
this notion of finding the sparks within the food also foster community? And the answer is yes. It's not just that like, you know, socially, psychologically, you eat together with other, other, with other people, you, you sing together with other people, you feel connected. This notion of, folk, of, of viewing eating as a spiritual practice is actually integral to fostering community according to Chabad philosophy. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me share a screen again. We're going to skip um, source 11, which is, which is another iteration of this, of this idea from, um, from the Baal Shem Tov. But the Baba Cherebi focused on the interplay between just like people sitting around eating together and this spiritual practice in many of his talks. Because again, his talks were always in the context of people sitting around eating together. So he was constantly reflecting what was going on. So he, he, he said as follows. This is from Tashi Tavshin Chav this is 1961. Says, our masters before us instituted that every Farangan should include literal food, not just food as a metaphor for Torah, not just food as a metaphor for, for togetherness, but literal eating. Why? This can be elucidated based on an idea mentioned in the writings of the Arizal. Arizal, again, is the 16th century mystic, which is explained in the teachings of Hasidism regarding the verse, for not on bread alone, Rather, a person lives based on the word of God within the bread that a person lives. Meaning, a person lives not just based on the bread alone, but based on the spiritual, spiritual sustenance and the sparks that a person is gaining when they eat properly. So what does this force you to do when you eat? Again, there's a whole, psych there's a whole branch of psychology, of, of, of food psychology. One of the things they tell you to do is to eat intentionally, is to like chew your food many times in order to focus on what you're doing so you, so you, don't, so you don't overeat, so you appreciate the food, to eat mindfully, not, not eat mindlessly. That is exactly what Hasidus teaches you as well, just with not just mindfully and paying attention to what you're doing, but paying attention to the spiritual processes that are going on. So when you're eating, you're supposed to be thinking, this apple tastes like an apple. It's a physical item but there's a spiritual core to it. And I'm trying to connect to that spiritual core as well. I'm trying to elevate myself and elevate the apple through this act of eating. What does that force you to do? This means that it is specifically through the physical bread that one reveals the interiority, the word of God. What is the way to become spiritual? What is the way to manifest your soul, to connect to the spiritual sparks that are all over the world? Again, it's not through retreat. It's not through being reclusive. It's not through going to a monastery and taking, and, and taking, and taking vows of abstinence. It is through engaging the physical world, but doing it any way that you're aware of God, of the divinity, of spirituality that's animating everything. So that is what eating Hasidically forces you to do. You're look, engaging physical items and realizing there is an encasement, the food tastes good, but at the same time, there's a spiritual process that, it, that is going on behind the scenes. What is that parallel to? It's exactly parallel to the way you're supposed to look at other people around you. This process is similarly true regarding greatest food that it brings close, this Talmudic passage, that food brings people together. Through bread, the paradigm of food, people can feel close in a true and inner fashion. What's going on? According to Tanya, according to early, early Hasidic thought, how does a spiritual mindset and focusing on myself as a soul and contemplation and meditation, how does that foster love and unity and community? 
Because if you're looking at things from a physical, from an external lens, I'm me, you're you. I like the Yankees, you like the Mets. I'm a, I'm a Democrat, you're a Republican. I'm not saying anybody, whatever it is, whatever your politics are. Um, we have, there are lots of external differences and therefore that is going to create barriers between us. But if I look at things through a spiritual lens, then yes, all that is true. And I'm not gonna, I may not love you as much as I love other people, but deep down, I'm a soul, you're a soul, and we're connected on that level. So the process of fostering community beyond boundaries, beyond natural boundaries, is by looking at things spiritually, not just the outer encasement. What is the process of eating, according to Chabad Chassidot? Exactly the same thing. Eat your food, enjoy it. The apple tastes good, the vodka tastes good, whatever it is. But at the same time, think about the spiritual elements that are there beyond the food, that are there within the food, the divine sparks that are trapped there, which you're trying to elevate. And if you eat mindfully then, if you eat spiritually, it's the same mindset that is going to foster community. It's not, you have to look beyond the apple, look beyond the person's political affiliations, beyond the way they look, beyond their personality even, beyond the way they act, how obvious they are, and connect to them on a soulful level. And therefore, eating together itself fosters community because it's the same mindset that allows for the deepest and most, most profound level of love among, among human beings to exist. And the Rebbe said, and, this, and, this, and this, is a, this speech was given at the end of the month of Tishrei. The end of the month of Tishrei is like the high, is the high holiday season. It's when all the holidays are. That's when a lot of Hasidim, a lot of families come, came to the Rebbe they came to Crown Heights, they came to Brooklyn where he lived and they spent the holiday season there. I think Rabbi Jonathan, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says that his first like intense, intense religious experience was spending, was spending Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah in Crown Heights with the Baba Cherevi at some point, some point in, in the 1960s. But at some point after Sukkot, people go home. And this speech was given, was the last speech before people went home. And what's he saying? What's he emphasizing? We're all sitting here together, eating together now. And that creates a bond. We're thinking spiritually. And if we think spiritually, and it's the soulful connection with your food, the soulful connection with the other people, that is what, we, that is what we're gaining from this process, that connection is going to exist even when you go home, even if you travel to another continent. Because once the connection is spiritual, it's long lasting, and physical distance is not going to matter, is not going to impede those proper feelings. Through bread, the paradigm of food, people can feel close in a true and inner fashion, which will, remain, which will remain even if later there is a physical distance between them. There will be a lasting unity, despite the fact that one's, one person's body is in one location and the other person's is in another location because the, because the community is being created through food, i.e. through eating and thinking of other people spiritually. Then he quotes this passage of Tanya in chapter 32, which, which says you're supposed to think about yourself and other people in terms of their souls, in terms of their basic identity and, 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 and less in terms of the people. So if you, if you take a step back, I think it's like a, first of all, any, any comments or questions on that? Great. Um, so I think if, if you take a step back, you, you, we find a really fascinating trajectory in, in Jewish thought between the Chaveirim and the sectarians and, and contemporary Hasidic community, contemporary Hasidic philosophy. Again, in the Chaveirim, in the sectarians, it was, there was a conflict between intense spirituality and the value of community broadly defined. And therefore, either you cut community off entirely 
or you found ways to navigate your conundrum of this, this conflict, this conflict of values. But over here, the, one of the fascinating things about Chassidut is that the conflict doesn't exist. Again, Akedah is right, Kadia is right, and at some level the conflict does exist on a practical level, but at least philosophically, ideologically, the conflict doesn't exist. The only way the spirituality, the mysticism, the meditation, the contemplation, all that is true and all that is there and all that is emphasized in a Hasidic lifestyle, but at the same time, all of that feeds in and teaches you that the best way to connect to other people is by sitting around a physical table, no matter who's there, sitting around a physical table, eating together and drinking together and connecting on a social level, at the same time connecting on a spiritual level. And by doing so, the community that you create is going to be not just greatest food that brings people together and when they're actually together, but it's gonna be so long lasting that it's going to continue even when people go home, even when people are, are physically distant from each other. And, and for me, I think that this, that this is a passage from the Babish Rebbe that I, I thought about, that I've been thinking about a decent amount and during the last couple of months during, during, during this pandemic. The thing, as I mentioned at the beginning, beginning of the last session, one of the things that we're missing during this pandemic, in addition to all the, all the, all the, all the, the real craziness that's happening in terms of health and livelihood and mental health and all these things, is just our, is our social interactions. You know, we're, we're interacting over a screen as opposed to interacting together at, 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 at one location. And as the rabbi himself spoke about, a farmrengen is getting as many people together in a room together, that creates the community. But I think what the lesson of this, of this passage is that, is that, yes, is that sitting around a table together with people does create a high level of community. But at least for people that you've done that together with in the past, there is a way that becomes long lasting and you still feel that connection. You still feel that yearning towards them, that affinity towards them, despite the fact that you actually haven't sat down with them for a meal in six months and seven months in however long it's been. I think this, this passage is a comforting passage for us during, the, during this time period, that even as we can't sit together with so many people, many, many of us, I know I, I have loved ones that I have just have not eaten with in the longest, in the longest time, but the connection can still exist because it was, it was created over food, it was created over spirituality, and Gadol Lugima Shemekrebe's greatest food that it, that it brings people together in such a long lasting fashion. Okay. Um, any, any comments or questions before, before, the, before the last source in the grand finale? I had one thing and I had to drop out for a bit. So you might've covered this, but I was thinking about um, what you were saying about man cannot live by bread alone and the different levels of meaning that that could have. And I was thinking that that has to have context as well, because for people that are waiting on food lines, for example, you can't say, well, you're starving, you know, you don't need bread, you just need spirituality. So I think almost you, for that to make sense, you have to like, people have to have food, they can then think about other kinds of things as well. So right. it's just really interesting with the context, you know, it's not, can't tell the starving people, right? Um, you know, so I think that, when you put in that kind of context, it's a very interesting expression because that's assuming you've got your fulfillment from food, but then you can go for spiritual things. So it's just finding that balance. I never thought about it in that way until I was just thinking about stuff as you're as you're talking. About. No, Steve, you're right. You're right. No, and 100. And uh, yes, I, I guess I'm coming from a place of privilege, and thank God I've always been able. I, my wife and I have always been able to be always been able to put food in our table even during this pandemic. 
But unfortunately, there are a lot of people that are on that are on the lines for at the food pantries, and it's hot. It's like there are no. My mom needs rights in several places. It's hard to think about spirituality and further human developments if you don't have your basic needs met, right? This is, this is Mas, Maslow, I think, right? Maslow, um, the pyramid, the pyramid of a, uh, the pyramid of hierarchy of needs. Thank you, hierarchy of need. Thank you. That if your basic needs are met, you can't think about the higher the higher levels. Um, yeah, and then th this notion of bringing people together spiritually through eating is assuming you have food. Otherwise, you just otherwise you have you have much more urgent things to be to be worried about. Um, so, th so, so thank you for that uh, for, for that comment. Um, and just to, just to conclude our series about about food about food and community and food fostering community. Whenever we're talking about Chabad, I think one of the things Chabad Chabad is known for is being a messianic movement and always focusing on Mashiach and, and, and trying to create the utopian era. And this notion of, of food bringing people together um, and the Fabrengen as, as fostering this type of community, for the Rebbe of Fabrengen, when people eat around a table together and they're creating that, that, that type of community, that's actually a microcosm of the utopian era. That is like a, the light of Mashiach, the light of the messianic era that is shining through in the contemporary times because you have all the elements of messianic era. You have unity among people, you have physical bounty, you have physical bounty, you have spirituality, you have the divine presence revealed. Therefore, the Fabrengen is not just a good way of fostering community, it's actually creating like a bubble of messianic reality within our within our within our current tragic, within our current tragic state. It's almost like a Shabbos-like experience. And therefore, many, many Fabrengans, the Baba Shrabi concluded with these lines or similar lines, it says, may it be God's will that all of these Fabrengans, during which the notion of Jewish unity and love is emphasized, particularly when people say L'chaim together, great is eating that it brings close. Again, the same lines, particularly during the week, in which you read the Parsha, you're all standing before God. Does this particular Fabrengan happen to be held during the week of Parshas and Savim? Atamit Savim Hayom Kulachem, you were all standing in front of God. In the merit of all these Ferengans, may the verse, a great congregation shall return here, be fulfilled, that Jews should be redeemed in a manner of our youths, our elders, our sons and our daughters, i.e. with a complete nation, with the complete and perfect fulfillment of Torah and mitzvot, with the true and complete redemption through Messiah speedily in our days. And through the Ferengan, through experiencing a little bit of the messianic reality in our current tragic state, we should merit the real messianic reality. Then when we, when we can really all come together, when we can really all experience both in unity on a national level, on a global level, and also the divine presence, because again, the two things go together. The only way to experience God is to experience unity with other people. Looking at the world through a spiritual, through a spiritual lens, that's what brings divinity down into, that's what brings divinity down into our world. And I hope, and I, I, I hope and pray that soon we'll be able to eat together again, to meet together in person again, create communities through food again. Um, and by doing so, hopefully we will merit the Messianic era, we will merit, we will merit the coming of Mashiach when we're able to, to experience the, the unity and, and divinity of everybody else and also the divine presence in a real and palpable way. Um, thank you so much. I really appreciate learning together, learning together with everybody. And any final comments or questions, I'm more than welcome to, uh, to, to, feel, to feel them right now. Thank you, Rabbi, Thank you so for a wonderful share. Thank you. Thank you.
Okay. Thank you, Rabbi Ronstein, for these wonderful uh, two classes. I hope to learn with you again in the future. And thank you to everyone else who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. We continue our Winter's Man program this evening at 8 p.m. with the third class of a four-class series on scarcity and planning, food policy and distribution in Alaha and in America with Rabbi Lea Sarna. In addition, we have many more classes happening right now. You can uh, find more information on our website at www.dresha.org classes, or you can watch classes live at www.dresha.org live. Thank you again for this opportunity to learn with you, Rabbi Bronstein. And thanks again to everyone who attended. We hope to see you soon in one of our upcoming classes here at Drisha. Have a wonderful day. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Evie, and thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.